0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. God has placed eternity
1: in your heart, and there's something in you that knows you're never going to go out of existence. Your body may die, but the essential you keeps going.
0: Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. My name is Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. and if you've been around this program for any length of time, you know Pastor Jeff loves to challenge us. Well this message is no different. Today's challenge or question is, can others see evidence of transformation in your life and in my life, transformation by Christ in our daily lives? Let's join Pastor Jeff as he begins this message. He's preaching from Luke chapter 12.
1: I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And uh, I want you to just keep your finger on that place. And while you're doing that, I'm going to ask you to multitask here. Uh, you've heard me talk about our radio program called Today with Jeff Vines down in Australia, New Zealand. So I want to welcome about, I don't know, 900 radio stations uh, every day of the week, basically. So I want to welcome them as well. Uh, I want you to stand, if you would. You're going to do two things for me. Can you stand? I know you've been standing, You've been but... But I think it's important from time to time that we stand during the reading of the word to remind ourselves that, you know, this is sacred stuff here. It's not just some myth that we pull out of the air. This is very sacred stuff that God has delivered to us. I'm going to read the passage out of Luke 12, verse 13 through 21. And here's what it says. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. All right, may God bless the reading of his word. We're in a series called Gospel in Life, and I really like the series because it allows me to be very practical about how the gospel impacts us. Move away from the abstractions and get right down to the nitty gritty. How is it that the gospel changes us? The passage that I just read is one of the most powerful explanations from Jesus, about how our attitudes change if we have truly had our heart transformed by the gospel. Now, to set this up just quickly, uh, I had an interesting week. I had jury duty. Now, I knew when I went in, there was no way they were going to let a pastor on any jury. But I was surprised. It took me two and a half days to find that out. And the first day I went, of course, you go into the little room in the courthouse. I was out in Rancho and they divide you up in groups. I was group C, and I was juror number 45 of 45 possible jurors. It took them two and a half days to decide on the 12 they would choose for the trial. And I knew, I mean, they talk about how the computer randomly chooses. I don't believe it for a second, because the random computer never randomly chose this random pastor. I mean, out of 45, I think the whole group, I think there might have been me and one other person, but they went through the whole group, I think, man, that's uncanny that the computer would not choose me. That's just weird. Now, I didn't want to be on, so I was happy. I'm willing to serve my country and my community, but I'm kind of busy. (laughs) But there was a time in the courtroom discussion that really piqued my interest. And it made me change the entire way I would approach this message. Because the lawyer representing the people was trying to describe to the jury the difference between circumstantial and direct evidence. Now, when he started the conversation, I'm seated in the juror box. I'm not in the actual 18 that's being interviewed. I'm just waiting. But I kind of, wow, this is going to be interesting. This is how the American courts of law look at direct and objective and circumstantial evidence. Now, I'd always been taught in philosophy that circumstantial evidence cannot be weighed by itself. It must be somehow related to what we call objective or direct evidence. Now, just so I don't lose you here, the lawyer said this. He said, in a court of law of the United States, circumstantial evidence is just as weighty as direct evidence. Now, let me tell you the difference. And he used these two examples that will help you. He said, how can a child who is not old enough to talk, how can you discover whether or not the child has a cold? If the child could talk, the child would say, I have a cold. That's called direct evidence. Circumstantial evidence is the fact that you can take a look at the kid, and the kid is sneezing, and his nose is running, his eyes are puffed up, he just doesn't look like he feels well. On that basis of circumstantial evidence, you can wisely deduce that the child has a cold. Then he used a second example. He said, let's say you're a Laker fan, and it's the playoffs, game seven, game seven, There's five seconds on the clock. The Lakers are down one. Kobe flies a three, but just as the ball's in the air, yes, I know Kobe's retired. This is hypothetical. Just before or while the ball is in the air, you lose power at home and the television set goes off. But By the time you find power, the game's over, but you see Kobe and teammates leaping for joy the circumstantial evidence would conclude that the shot Kobe fired from the three-point line actually went in. But you actually weren't there to see it. That would be called direct evidence. Now, my mind was spinning because I'm sitting there thinking, wow, if we applied this same rule of circumstantial evidence to the existence of God, it would be a no-brainer. Think about it. If trees are uprooted, and cars are overturned, and streets are flooded, and debris dominates the landscape, most of us agree that the circumstantial evidence is that there must have been a natural disaster of some kind. But if the tree even exists, and oceans exist, and planets exist, and the gravitational constant associated with planet Earth, as well as the strength of the strong and the weak nuclear forces, so that... We have almost exactly the same values in both that are essential for life to exist on planet earth to ensure that everything has been finally tuned in this universe so that life can continue to exist on planet earth. Then wouldn't the most logical deduction of circumstantial evidence be that there's a creator, a designer, and that's why you have all that is on planet earth. Nothing cannot produce something. No matter how clever you get with words and philosophy, you still can't solve that problem. Everything has to come from something that already is, other than God. And that's why we call him God, because he's self-existing. He doesn't depend on anything outside of himself for his existence. So my mind is spinning, and now yours is. And I'm thinking in the court, I thought, wow, I wish I could have 15 minutes to talk to these jurors. If it's true that circumstantial evidence is just as weighty as direct evidence who could logically deny the existence of God? But here's the thing. now stay with me. as you think about as beautiful and wonderful as the creation is, it's not the only circumstantial evidence for the existence of God. There are many. One of my favorite comes from Ecclesiastes 3:11, which is why I quoted to you probably every other week. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. You may not know everything about God from beginning to end, but you know enough to know that you don't have an end. That God has placed eternity in your heart, and there's something in you that knows you're never going to go out of existence. Your body may die, but the essential you keeps going. So within the human heart, God has revealed a few things to you. His circumstantial evidence is all up and down you and humanity. Let me just mention a few and then get to the point that Jesus is making in this passage. Number one, the desire for love, sacrificial love. Where does that come from? It makes no sense in a closed system. Sacrificial love does not strengthen the gene pool, does it? In atheistic evolution, the strong subdue the weak so that the gene pool can be strengthened. And yet one of the top values of humanity is sacrificial love, where the strong gives himself or herself for the weak. And that's one of our human values. So how on earth can atheistic evolution create in us a value of sacrificial love? Can't. God's mark is all over you. What about the sense of wonder? The sense of wonder that we have, unexplainable wonder. The the human heart And it's craving for something that is more, something that is new, something that is beyond. Never goes away. When my little boy Delaney was like five years old, I'd throw him up in the air. And what happens when you throw your little boy in the air and you catch him? What does he say? Do it again. He could do it. You could do it for days, over and over and over for some new thrill, for something new. First time I saw Victoria Falls in Africa, I like to remind people, the first thing I thought of is, my goodness, look at this. Who do I thank for that? There's this thing in you that wants to thank somebody for something like that. Who do you thank? G.K. Chesterton, my favorite quote, said, if my kids have Santa to thank for putting candy into their stockings, who do I have to thank for putting two feet into mine? And then there's the sense of morality that we've often talked about. But just the fact that you and I know that objective moral values, that there are moral obligations that we all have in this world. That even if our whole society thinks that murder is not wrong, it would still be wrong. That is called an objective moral law. And the only way you can have those is if you have an objective moral law giver. It's all over us. But there's one piece of information, of circumstantial evidence, that I think is more powerful than all the others, especially in this society. That's right. And do you know what it is? Your discontentment. You know that something's not right you know down deep inside that things are not the way they ought to be. And that's why you constantly yearn for something else. I've been through this a few times. Let me say it one more time. Do you remember the time that I mentioned the guy by the name of Anthony Lane to you, who was a writer for The New Yorker, and he was critiquing J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings? And here's the critique that he gave. It is a book that bristles with bravado. Yet to give into it, to cave into it, as most of us did on the first reading, betrays a reluctance to face the finer shades of life that verges on the cowardly. What does he mean by that? He simply means this. If you're drawn to fantasy, if you like watching Star Wars and reading Lord of the Rings or even Sleeping Beauty or fairy stories, fairy tales or Peter Pan or Superman, all of those, if you're drawn to those and you like them, it's because you, he says, are a coward. It's because these great stories really didn't happen. They're not factually true. So that if you're drawn to them, it's because you can't face the reality of your own life, that life stinks and there's nothing you can do about it. You can dream all you want, fantasize all you want, but it doesn't change a thing. You're desperate and alone and that's all you're ever going to be, he says. The problem though is when men like Anthony Lane are asked about the origin of human longing, from where Inside you does this longing for a better world come. How did it get there? And it's not just in one, it's in everyone. A longing for something better, longings that realistic fiction could never satisfy. Deep in every human heart is a desire to do what? Escape death for the supernatural, to experience a love that never parts. For invincibility, to communicate with the animals and angels, to triumph over all evil, to fly, to see the trees come alive. Why is this desire in you? And the critics come up with no answer. All the best known stories, all of them have these aspects to them. Even Walt Disney wanted to create a place of what? Where he could tell a better story and give children the fantasy of a better world. That's why it's called The Happiest Place on Earth. His stories end well, don't they? Most of the time. The reason that we are drawn to these stories is because even though we know the stories themselves are not true, we know that the underlying realities to which the stories point are true. That there's a better place. That there's a sense of beyond in you and you know it and that's why you're discontent. That this is not the way it's supposed to be and you know that. There's a rationale behind the sense That we are pulled into the beyond. You've heard me say numerous times we desire food because food exists, we yearn for intimacy because intimacy exists, and we yearn for a sense of beyond because beyond exists. C.S. Lewis put it like this you've heard me say this numerous times. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, here's the catch. This is where it gets good. Gospel in life. How does it change us? Here's what Jesus says. There are two kinds of people on planet earth. Those who live for the here and now and those who live ultimately for what is to come. There's no in-between road. I remember a pastor once talking about life between the trees. I think it was Rob Bell who used that example the first time. There's a tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life from which everything flows, and then there's a tree in the very last book of the Bible, only this time it's a tree in a city, the new city that God is restoring. And our entire life is lived between these two trees in hopes of what is beyond the second tree. And what gets us to life beyond the second tree is the one in the middle, the tree in the middle, the cross of Jesus Christ, enables us to do what Adam never did, build a city of righteousness and justice, the city on a hill that cannot be hidden. But here's the beauty. The person who has been truly impacted by the gospel has his or her eyes open to eternity. Oh, yeah, to eternity. You say, what's eternity? You may say, well, eternity is the length of a Jeff Vine sermon. (laughs) And I would take that on the chin, especially from this crowd. Still, others might say eternity is the time it takes Grandpa to show a picture of his grandkids to the lady in the checkout line behind which I'm waiting. Eternity. But Jesus said eternity is not really that hard for you to fathom, and here's why: because down deep inside, you know that you are more than your body. You know that you're more than your body shell. You look in the mirror when you get older, and you can't. You're shocked, aren't you? Because the real essential you is not the body. That's the tent. The real you is non-material. So how do you destroy something that is non-material? The soul. That's the point. You can't. You've been created in the image of God. You're built to last, to live forever, the essential you. That's the circumstantial evidence that has been placed all over you. He's placed eternity in your heart. Now in that context, let's go back to the passage. Here's what Jesus says to the man who wants to build bigger barns and live his life between the trees. He says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So Jesus basically says all through the New Testament, you're gonna know these people who are living for life beyond the trees by three things. Now, I usually again or seldom tell you to write things down. But you need to write these down because it's one of those things you can put in your Bible somewhere and go back to from time to time. It's not a test of your faith. It's the natural effect of a cause of a transformed heart. So you don't get your way into heaven by living this way. But if you truly have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, this will be the automatic result of your life. This is how you'll live. Number one, they invest their resources primarily in what is beyond. That's how you know they're living for what is beyond the trees. Uh, do you think we're greedy people? Come on, are we greedy? Absolutely. I am. You are. Let me tell you how. Give you an example. This past week, uh, things just keep happening for me in relationship to the Dodgers. I mean, I don't know if it can get any better. I shared with you before, my childhood hero was Steve Garvey. Well, this past week, I got to have dinner with Steve Garvey. Can you believe this? I mean, it just keeps getting better. He's the nicest, most cordial gentleman that I have probably ever met in my life. He's in his 70s now, you know. Looks fantastic because he's got all his hair. But I got to have dinner with Steve Garvey. I got to go down onto Dodger Field and talk to Steve Garvey. And he, they gave us little gifts. Look, I got a Steve Garvey signed baseball hat. I got a Steve Garvey signed baseball. I got a little pendant from the Dodgers. I got some bobbleheads. It was just big, big basketful. Then we got to go into that private restaurant and have dinner before the game. I mean, it's a buffet, a smorgasbord. I ate everything I could find. And then they have a dessert table and ice cream. I mean, it was fantastic. Tommy Lasorda walking by. Ron Say walking by. People just walking by. Steve Sachs. It was fantastic. And then they put us in these seats on the field. Look how good these seats were, man. I've never had seats like this right down on the field. And they kept coming by to say, what would you like to eat? Just order. And I said, well, how much is it? It's free. It's free. Remember what I told you? I spent my entire life trying to figure out the meaning of life, and now I know it's about free food. If you get free food, man, that's the meaning of life. And it's the sixth inning in a good game. And one of the Dodgers hit a foul ball right in my territory. And you would think that I had never seen a baseball before. I threw everything down, my Dodger dog, everything to try to get this ball. I wanted it so badly. But I had everything already. but it's never enough. It's never enough. I am so greedy. You are so greedy. And the Bible says gaining what? gaining stuff is okay and that's one thing, but investing is quite another. And Jesus goes to Great Lakes to say, when your heart has been changed by the gospel, you consistently and generously invest your resources toward the life that is beyond. Yes, you live in the here and now, but your greatest pride and passion is for what is going to happen beyond the trees. And you do that not because somebody forces you to. Some pastor doesn't coerce or manipulate you into doing that. You do it because that's you. It's what matters most to you. Life not here, but beyond the trees. And most people will look at you as if you're insane, that you would make an investment. But Jesus would say, wise people would invest in things about which they're certain. And he would say, you you can be absolutely certain based on what I've done for you and the resurrection that's an historical fact. You can be certain that this kingdom, that this world here is temporary. That you can go ahead and enjoy your life and work hard and fight racism and injustice. All that's good, but ultimately all this earth will pass away. It's only the kingdom of God that's going to stand forever. And this is not myth, Jesus says. This is not fantasy. It's reality. And so your life must correspond to what you truly say, you truly believe. Jesus said it in different ways. He said this in Matthew 6, 19, don't store it for yourself treasures on earth. Where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's he saying in the passage? We've heard this quoted all our lives. But here's what his point is. True treasures cannot be in material things because material things always fade. You can be certain they'll be burned up. So what is the only thing that's not material? The soul. So the question is, Are you investing in that which is eternal, or is the major part of your resources, are the major parts of your resources invested in something that will, something that's physical, something that is destined for failure?
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fiennes. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. He says... Oh, I got
1: enough now. I got plenty of grains stored up for years. I'm going to take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus says, you're a fool because all your investments are in the here and now, and it's all going to burn up. The real question is, are you rich toward God? You say, well, how can I be rich toward God? By investing in what is beyond the trees.
0: You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff finds wherever you listen to podcasts. Make me wanna taste and sing with every single bread I I will bring this over You are my wonder you the wonder Today 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 with Jeff Vines This is a production by One and All Media For more head to oneandall.media